Well, take your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 tonight. So thankful for that song. Thankful for the heart it was sung with and the truth that it contains. Man, I am a blessed man. I, I know that you would probably say that you are a blessed people. And you ought to say it if you truly believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. We are very, very blessed. Acts chapter 13 tonight, we uh, will begin reading at verse number 14. We continue our series on the journey of Peter, uh, I'm sorry, Paul. It's bad when the preacher doesn't even know who he's talking about, amen? But we're talking about Paul and his journey from becoming the persecutor to the preacher. And what's unique about tonight's message is that we're covering his very first public message. Uh, his very outspoken, very lengthened, and he has spoken in public, but not to this extent. I mean, he's spoken, but he's never uh, ripped face, as I like to call it. He's never shucked the corn, if you know what I mean. I mean, he's never really laid into her like a wind-sucking preacher ought to. But tonight, uh, Paul uh, turns into the preacher that we become very familiar with in Scripture. Acts chapter 13, we'll start reading in verse 14. And we're going to talk about when the preacher gives you more than you bargained for. Verse four, 14 of chapter 13, the Bible says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now this is terrible idea for anybody to say to a preacher. I went to Bible college and uh, before men's devotions... People would show up early, and they did what they called popcorn preaching. In other words, they just opened the mic, <laughs> and anybody that wanted to get up and preach could preach. And we talked about everything from pink shirts to Starbucks coffee. Very few biblical things were talked about, but those guys just got up there, and they ripped for no reason other than to rip. And so it's a good time. Well, this is very similar to looking at a pit bulldog and say. Sickum boy, okay? That's what they say. They look at Paul and they say, Brother, if you have anything you want to exhort us with, you just go ahead and exhort us. So that's where we find ourselves. They say, if you want to preach to us, preach. Verse number 16. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, and that's a good thing to look for in your preacher. See, a preacher ought not be grabbing the podium or the pulpit the whole night. He ought to beckon some people, okay? He ought to beckon. All right, that's what beckoning is. That's what I imagine it as anyway. But stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an high arm brought, them, brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years he suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of four hundred and fifty years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and of whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. 
Now, this is very similar to my father standing up here and saying, if I'm standing in your front yard, I'm not talking to your neighbor. He says, I'm addressing everybody who fears God. I'm addressing anybody that uh, is of the nation of Israel. I'm addressing anybody within the shot of my sound this evening. I'm talking to you. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. They found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. When they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid into his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw corruption. No corruption. Now, I don't know about you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but don't say anything if you think I'm wrong. But correct me if it doesn't sound like he's preaching here. He says, but David saw corruption, but I got news for you this evening. Jesus saw no corruption as the scripture is. That's the way I picture this, because obviously he's a southern preacher, not a southern Baptist preacher, a southern preacher. Okay, that's that's that uh, that's Paul, man. He's sitting here preaching with all of his heart. And he's preaching about Jesus. Verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. When the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath day. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Paul's sermon here tonight. Lord, may we rightly divide the scripture. And Lord, may we find out of his sermon truths and things that we can apply to our own life. Lord, things that will make an impact on us. As he's preaching to people who needed the word of God, Tonight, I pray that the same message would be delivered to a group of people who are hungering for the Word of God. Lord, please be with us in this sermon. I I pray that you would be with me. And Lord, I pray that you direct me. I pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen. I've got a question for you. Have you ever bitten off more than you could chew? I work at Joshua Baptist Church, so (laughs) yeah. No, I remember one specific time... I was in high school, and I was playing basketball, and I thought I was a decent basketball player. We graduated, and, and they had given me some awards and told me that I was good for all the uh, uh, four schools that we played and, and uh, you know, all the kids that were homeschooled. And, and Okay, I'm just trying to say we, we played pretty poor competition, so them giving me a great award was not really that big of a compliment. But uh, they, they gave me some awards, and they, I thought at that point that I was a good basketball player. And I went to college, and, and I was going to go out and play basketball for, for my college, because I was a good basketball player. 
And uh, I got out there, and uh, they started to say that tryouts were going to be held on this date. And so I began to prepare myself mentally. I heard, however, that before we ever touched a basketball, for two weeks, everybody who wanted to try out, not everybody who made the team, but anybody who wanted to try out would have to condition with the team. And so you had no guarantee of making the team, but you had to do the conditioning program uh, regardless of whether or not you were actually any good or not. So I said, well, I'm good. So this conditioning thing ought to be no big deal. I remember in the two days leading up to the actual tryouts, I went out to get myself in quick shape. <laughs> like that works. Uh, uh, and y y if you don't know, my diet consists of Dr. Pepper and McDonald's pretty much predominantly. Um, now that I'm married, it's McDonald's only four times a week and Dr. Pepper six times a day. So I've cut back a little bit. But I w I've never been a guy who's really focused on my physique. I, I know it's hard to tell uh, looking at me tonight, but I, I never, even in basketball and football, I would try running and I would do the conditioning programs and whatnot, but I never focused on that. And so get going to college, I didn't know what to expect. And so I decided in the two nights prior to the tryouts, I was going to run and get myself in, like I said, quick shape like that works. And so I did for two nights prior to the actual practice or the conditioning program, I began to run. And I realized quickly that I was very out of shape as just a few uh, uh, laps around the field there, I was exhausted. I didn't know what to expect, though, so I went into the first practice. And we all line up around there, and there were about 40 guys there to try out for basketball. Now, that's kind of crazy because there were only about 500 guys at my school, and 40 of them thought they were good enough to play on a 10-person basketball team. And I found myself wondering at that point if I was legitimately better than all of these other guys. And so I... I said, well, I've been told by a Lord that I'm not bad, so we'll just give it a whirl. The coaches then began to explain to us what we'd be doing that night. They told us that we would just run until they stopped us. And at, at my school, they have a big uh, recreational field. It's a soccer field in the middle of two baseball diamonds. And I tried doing some math today. And the way I have done it, I know that it took eight iron to get from one end to the other, <laughs> okay? Don't ask me how I know, but I know. It took eight iron. And I had an eight iron about 150 yards. So I did the math on the length. I did the math on the width because I, the, the foul line went down that. So the baseball foul line went down there. And so I kind of have a rough estimate on how big this field was. But if you don't know, a soccer field is generally much bigger than a, a, a football field, a regulation football field. Football, they run a lot more than football. So uh, the field was much larger than a normal field. But that night, they started us running. And I remember they stood in the middle just laughing at us, just laughing. 22 laps later, uh, they blew the whistle. Now you say 22 laps, that's not very many. That's true if it were a basketball court. Or that's true if it were a gymnasium. But by the math I have done, that night I ran 10.8 miles because the field is so large. And now that's my math. I may be high on that just because I wanted y'all to feel bad for me. But 10.8 miles. Uh, what's a marathon? Like 12.6? A half marathon's 12.6, right? Is that right? Yeah, because Tiffany used to run them. I know. So 12.6. I basically ran half a marathon, and I had no training before that. I remember all these guys were running around me, like lapping me. Like, I'm running 22. Why do you want to run more than that? I was so uh, confused as to why they were doing it. By the end of the night, my side hurt like someone was stabbing me in the belly with a sledgehammer. And you say, how does that even make sense? It was the most excruciating dull pain I'd ever felt in my side, ever, besides when my wife hits me every night. But other than that, it was terrible. And so I was exhausted. Then comes night two. So the next day of class, I'm all wore out. Oh, man, I'm hurting. I say, surely they were just weeding out all the losers the first night. But I'm no quitter. 
My dad taught me you, you finish what you start. So I go to night two, man. And the first night was the slow run. The second night is the fast runs. We did 12 100-yard dashes. You say, well, that doesn't sound like much. But the thing is, number one, they gave us 13 seconds to finish 100 yards. Now, I have never been known as Speedy Gonzalez, okay? I am not a fast person by any means. And all these other guys, they're just flying 13 seconds to run 100 yards. And so the first time, I was like, I made that in like 12.2 seconds. I'm good. By number 12, I don't know if I made it. I was hurting. Then they took us to this ginormous hill. I don't even know what it's doing on campus, but it is this huge hill. And they made us jump up a hill. Now, who in their right mind jumps up a hill? I don't know, because you only gain about two inches every time you jump. But I was so exhausted. We huddle up, dismiss, and everybody goes back to their dorm. And I'm really evaluating in my life whether or not this lesson my dad has taught me is a good one. Because I was hurting. And then I began to think, well, technically, I have not started basketball. I have only started a conditioning program. And I was quite okay at that point to quit the, the conditioning program. I never went to practice three because I was like, chances are these guys are way better than me anyway. They're faster than me. They're all better looking than me. I think they must all be on steroids. And so I just decided that night I had bit off way, way more than I could chew. And there have been times in my life when I've been in a preaching service and the man feels like he is speaking directly to me. And everything he's saying is what I'm doing. And everything that he's telling me from the Word of God hits me right at home. That's where I'm at. And he's speaking to me. And I just sit there and I feel, man, I'm buying enough more than I can chew with this. But can I say when a preacher speaks to you like that, that's one of the most blessed events in a Christian's life. When a preacher speaks to you, you know why it feels like he's talking directly to you? Because the Lord is using the Holy Spirit as a delivery man directly to you. And so many people say, well, I got saved one night and I don't even remember what the preacher was talking about. It doesn't matter because when it got to the Holy Spirit, all he was yelling at you was, you need to get saved. And that's an amazing thing. Tonight I want to take a look at how God takes sermons and applies them to our life. See, I never prepare sermons with people in mind. I, I don't pick faces when I prepare sermons, and I know for a fact that neither does my father. We never do that, but people say, it feels like you're preaching right at me. That's a blessed event to have in your life, because some people never experience the moving of the Holy Spirit like that. So tonight I want to take a look at when your preacher gives you more than you bargained for. First of all, and this is a good characteristic for every sermon to have, when a preacher points out your failures, when he points out your failures, you say, it seems like at this church you point out a lot more failures than you do successes. <laughs> well, that's just the way it is. But I want you to take a look in chapter 13. I want you to look down uh, uh, verse number uh, 22. Or, I'm sorry, verse 20. The Bible says, And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 400 years. Uh, verse number 18 says, And about the time of 40 years, he suffered he their manners in the wilderness. Now, we all know the story of the children of Israel, don't we? It's a rough one, to say the least. God gives them great victory, and it almost seems like instantaneously they're at another failure. And even Paul here, as he's preaching, re goes over what their fathers did so poorly. And he says that it was a constant battle between God and them. And God would bless them, and they would fail. God would give them victory like Jericho, and then there would be an Achan in the camp. That's just the way Israel seemed to work. 
God would be giving them his law. And what were they doing? They're at the base of the mountain saying, as for this man Moses, we, not, we don't know what's happened to him. But Aaron, up, make us gods that shall go before us into this land. And so they say, uh, we've we been given great things, but we continuously fail. And there was this struggle and this battle of failure and success and victory and failure. Sometimes the man of God will point out our misbehavior. Do you know what the Bible says about the Scripture? The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that ought to be good enough for us, that God gave us His Word. The Bible also says it is profitable for doctrine. And we as a church believe in doctrine. There's a lot of churches that don't believe in doctrine. These churches do, don't want to conform to any type of name. They don't want to label themselves. And so if you believe something and, and they believe something, we can all come together and we'll just believe whatever we want. And unfortunately, we get this smoothie of blended doctrine and nobody knows what they believe. The Bible gives us the scripture for doctrine. That is its primary purpose. And that's why this church believes in doctrine. But not only does it believe in doctrine, the Bible says the Scripture is profitable for reproof. In other words, the Scripture was given to us to tell us when we're wrong. To tell us how to behave and when we misbehave, it's there to correct us. For reproof, the Bible says, for correction. So the Bible not only tells you when you're wrong... It tells you uh, uh, how, what to do when you're wrong. It tells you how to get right. And the Bible says, for instruction in righteousness. Then it sets you on a path on how to please God. You see, the Bible was given to us to be delivered to us so that we could be told when we were misbehaving. The other day, I, I just heard this story today at lunch. Mandy and Craig went out on a date or doing something. I don't even know what they were doing, but Mom was watching Ben. And for all you ladies that have been in the nursery with Ben, y'all know Ben quite well. He's the one in the corner making all the noise and racket and doing everything you tell him not to do. Ben's, Ben's going through his terrible twos and threes and I'm seventeens. Okay, Ben's going through it. Well, Mom is having trouble getting Ben to eat his eggs. She says, Ben, eat your eggs. And he looks at her and says, no. And let me just stop right here and say, if my sister or if I had ever done that to our mother, we would not be here. There would be someone else in front of you preaching tonight because she would have eradicated me. But Ben says, no. Mom decides to call Mandy and Craig says, Mandy, Craig, I'm having trouble getting Ben to eat his eggs. And this was their reaction. <laughs> now you know what we deal with. Am I, is that right? Did I get the story fairly accurate? That's what happened. You see, Mom uh, was trying to get Ben to eat his eggs, and they say, hey, we've been telling you, he's a terrible brat. You don't want to believe it, Grandma, but he's a brat. He's a, my cut, or nephew, he's, he's the bomb, but he's a brat. And Caleb's probably going to be a bigger brat. But I'm just saying, Mom was there to let Mandy and Craig know, just inform them. Did you know your son disobeys? And Mandy says, I didn't know he ever obeyed. That's what the scripture was given to us for, was to tell us when we're wrong. So why would we think when a preacher gets on our front lawn and begins to tell us, hey, this is what you're doing wrong. This is why your life's not going in the direction God wants it to go. That's why you're not happy. That's why you find bitterness. That's why you're living in anger. That's why you're here. Why would that surprise us? I don't want to be a part of a church on a, with a man on a stool just telling me about the love of Christ. Because every once in a while, I need to hear a little bit about what Christ expects me to be. You have that in this church. 
And as Paul's preaching, he says, Our fathers made God put up with them for 40 years in the desert. And that's what preachers need to do. They need to tell us when God is not pleased with our life. Secondly, he tells us about our miscalculations. In verse 20, the Bible says, And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 400 year, 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king. Now be very careful here to notice who desired the king. God did not desire a king. Israel desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. Now, do we all remember the story of Saul? We have a skewed paradigm of Saul. And what I mean by that is, we, are only, uh, we only recognize Saul for the latter years in his life. But when the Lord anointed him king, when Samuel anointed him king... There was not a man more qualified in all of Israel. There was nobody that could have been elected a better king than Saul. Saul was a humble man. Saul was a mighty man. Saul was the perfect man for the job. But you see, it was Israel that wanted the king. God wanted to be their king, but they said, we want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. So God picked the most qualified man. Samuel anointed the most qualified man. Guess what? He messed up. He failed. He began to depart from the law of God. He began to depart from the will of God. And sooner or later, we eventually find him summoning up dead people because he can't get a voice from God. But then the Bible goes on to tell us about David. And truth be told, our, David, uh, our paradigm of David is the exact opposite of Saul's. We think, man, what a king David was. But even the man after God's own heart, the most qualified man in all the land to rule, didn't he mess up as well? What happened was, Israel looked at their situation and said, we think we can fix it. The problem was they didn't need to fix anything. God already had a perfect plan. But they began to ask, and God is so gracious, he gave them what they wanted. But that was plan B. You see, God had plan A, and they chose plan B. It's very similar to how Abraham, the man who is the model of faith in the Bible, the man who we are to admire and we look to as a pillar of faith, the man who basically headlines Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, that man, doesn't his wife come into him and say, God told us to, that he was going to give us a child. How about you go into to my handmaid, Hagar, and, and how about we take care of it ourselves? Don't we do that sometimes? Don't we try fixing our problems? Don't we try uh, aligning everything and setting it in place so that we can fix the things that are wrong with our life? We do that. You know what a preacher's here for? To draw your attention when you take the matter out of God's hands and place it in yours. Because when it's in our hands, they are in hands that can fail. When it's in God's hands, there is no failure with my king. You see, a preacher's here to draw your attention to the fact that in God's hands, if we'll have faith in God, He will always keep His word. That's what a preacher's here for. And sometimes a preacher, and in his sermon, needs to point out our failures. Secondly, I want you to notice, and this is a wise thing Paul does, he points to our faith. He points to our faith. See, not every sermon ought to be negative. Not every sermon ought to make you feel terrible. Because Christ did not come to condemn. Those that believe, are, that, that believe not are condemned, but them that believe on the name of the Son of God are condemned no longer. You see, John chapter 3, verse 16 is a beautiful verse. For God so loved the world, verse 17 says that we're no longer condemned. He did not come to this world to condemn us. He came to liberate us and to free us. So a preacher's obligation 
to his flock is to let them know that they can always rely on their faith. First of all, they can rely on the promise. Verse 23, he talks about David and he says, Of this man's seed hath God according to his promise. In other words, this is very similar to saying, And it came to pass. For with God, when he promises something, it always comes to pass. The Bible says, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. You see, you can always rely on the promises of my God. When I was younger, my parents would take me and we would, they would leave me with my uncle and my aunt. And my uncle was a very big hunter, and y'all know that I enjoy hunting. I've enjoyed it since I was very little. Uh, it was something that my dad and I could do together. And they would take me over to uncle's and, and my aunt's house. And every time I went, he was going hunting. And so what, have I, what, what do I say? Hey, uncle, can I go hunting with you? And he would always make up some excuse. He'd be like, Andrew, if you'll do this, next time I'll take you hunting. And so the next time I would come. I would come prepared, man. I would... I, this time I had my hunting license, let's say. And I, I say, Uncle, this is, I got it. You, you said if, if I had this, then you would take me hunting. And he said, well, if you have this, then I, I'll be able to take you hunting. One time it was, if you're in your camouflage, I'll take you next time. Guess what I came in the next time? Head to toe, I looked like Duck Dynasty out there with my makeup on. Man, I was full full-blown camoed out. You know why? Because I wanted to go hunting, but every time he did the whole bait-and-switch thing on me. And he would say one thing, and then I'd get there, and he'd just totally make up some new bogus story. He's like, well, Andrew, next time, if you're six foot three, I'll take you hunting. I'm 12 years old, you know? And, and it would make me so angry. I couldn't rely on him. You know, my God, you can rely on all the time. There has never been a time when God has not kept and honored His Word. Numbers chapter 23 assures us of this very thing. The Bible says, God is not a man that He should lie, neither the Son of Man that He should repent. Hath He said and shall not He do? Or hath He spoken and shall He not make good? You see, it is God that promises, but you can count on it, you can mark it down, you can bank the check. If God says it, it will come to pass. So as Paul's preaching to these men, he says, God, as he has promised, has given us Jesus Christ. I've got news for you tonight. There are tons of beautiful promises in the Word of God. And they are just as valid as the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. They are just as valid as the promise of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, that's something you can take to the bank. He will always be at your side. Better news than that, while you're at his side, you're in his hand. So you can rely on the promises of God. And as a preacher, we are to point that out. And when things look down and things look bleak and it seems like the valley just gets deeper and deeper, it is my job and it is our senior pastor's job to stand up and declare to you the promises of God were written for you. You can rely on God's promises. Not only that, you can rely on God's plan. Verse 26, the Bible says, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. See, sometimes we don't really realize how amazing the plan of salvation is. And what I mean by that is how many things had to fall into place that were orchestrated long before the foundation of the world and every day something fell into place so that one day a virgin would conceive and Jesus would be in the manger. We, we overlook the beauty and the significance of how the lamb that Abraham slew uh, when he substituted him for his son, how that one day we would be Isaac on the altar and that we would be substituted by the lamb that was caught in the thicket and he would be our Messiah. He would be the blood of the spotless lamb. 
One day, Christ would come for us. And while we don't say it every sermon, we ought to give you assurance that if your day just goes to pot and everything seems terrible, at the end of the day, you still have your salvation. And Christ still died for you. And you can do nothing to take away His compassion and His grace from your life. That's how good our God is. And so it is upon me to tell you about the plan of God. And even if you have a day when your dog uh, uh, eats your Wheaties and your car has a flat, and like my car right now, the air conditioner doesn't work, and I'm just hoping that the days get cooler so we can just put that off till next year. But you have a bad day? Man, at the end of the day, we still have Christ. And that ought to be enough to get us to the next day. That ought to be enough for us. You can trust in God's plan. Thirdly, you can trust in the plot. Look in verse 28. And I believe this is probably one of my great failures as a preacher. Verse 28, the Bible says, and if you pay attention to Paul, you'll notice this in, in, in every single sermon that he preaches. And though they found no cause of death in him... Yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. So there's the death of Christ. When they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him from the tree and laid him in the sepulcher. That's the burial of Christ. But God raised him from the dead. That's the resurrection of Christ. You know what we have here? We have Paul presenting the gospel. And when I said I believe it's one of my great failures as a preacher, is not every time do I implement the gospel in my sermon. And I feel as if it is my obligation, even if you say, oh, the story gets old. But it's the old story that saved me. And it's the old story that's going to keep it fresh. And it's that old story that's going to help me get up in the morning and say, hey, I ought to tell somebody else about the old story that's made such a change in the old man and given me a new nature. And that ought to be something that helps us live this life. Paul was a man who says the plot of God was perfect. And it was given to us so that we could trust in it and have enough oomph to get us to the next day. You can trust in that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is Paul, says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. I want to say something to you tonight, and I believe this with my whole heart. I have no clue how people without God make it through this world. No clue. It doesn't make sense to me. They say you use your religion as a crutch. My friend, I need it. Because if I didn't have this crutch, you want to call it a crutch, if I didn't have it to get me to the next day, I'd just fall down and need somebody to drag me because I am just a crippled man trying to walk through this world. My religion's not a crutch. It is a relationship with the one who sees tomorrow. It's a relationship with the one who created and crafted all that we see and all that we have. That is my relationship. I don't know how people without God make it through this world believing that they are the highest form of intelligence in this life. My friend, if I am the highest form of intelligence in this life, there will be no great victories won for mankind. If Stephen Hawking, if if the most brilliant mind in all of our time, and I'm not saying he is, please don't mistake me, I'm just saying... If you give me the smartest man, I'll show you a God who will put him to shame. You see, my God knows all. I don't know how they make it. As a preacher, in some of the best sermons I have ever heard in my life, a preacher points out the promise of my Savior. That helps assure me that my God honors all of his many promises. And his promises are what I hold on to. A preacher points out the plan of salvation, which even on my worst days shows that I have nothing to complain about. And a preacher also points out the plot that my Lord not only died, but had resurrection power 
And that is the same power that supports me every day I walk through this life. You see, I need the old plot. I need the old story because that helps me know that the same God who raised himself from the dead is the same God that promises Holy Spirit power in my life. I, I hope I hope that uh, some of our sermons rejuvenate you and energize you and help you as you go on your next day. Not only these, but I want to point out this. Some of the great sermons I've ever heard point out this thing. He points out our folly. You see, it is a preacher's job to point out your failures, but not all the time. Those churches, there's no happiness in a church that only talks about failures. It is a preacher's job to point to your faith and how that you can look upon it and you can rest upon it. And and if worse comes to worse, you still have your faith. But Paul here talks about folly. I want you to notice in verse 40. Uh, We'll start reading in verse 39. The Bible says, And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. So what's he talking about? He's talking about salvation. He is laying out the plan of salvation, and he is now telling them, gentlemen, if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. That's what he's saying. Verse 40. Now this is an odd turn in his sermon. Beware, therefore. Beware. Like, be on guard. Hey, pay attention if you weren't. You ever heard a preacher say that? Hey, I need you, I need you right now. Uh, just pay attention right here. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Okay, what is it? Behold ye despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall no, in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Paul here sends out a warning. And he's looking at the faces of a bunch of men. And if you read on, some react positively to the gospel, some do not. But he's looking at their faces, and as he's preached, he's read his crowd. And he's, he's, he's done his best to deliver the sermon, man. He's referenced Psalms. He's given his own heart in it. He's talked about the history of Israel. He knows his crowd. He's speaking to his crowd. Now he sees their faces. And he says, beware, lest someone preach you this message and you fail to move on it. If someone were to declare it to you, you still wouldn't believe. Who's declaring it? Paul's the one declaring. And he says, I'm standing here preaching to you. The greatest crime at this point would be you failing to heed the warning." Now, I understand he is specifically speaking in the terms of salvation. But doesn't God call us during preaching? Doesn't God move us in preaching? Doesn't God direct us in preaching? Couldn't imagine what would happen if Abraham had never followed the call of God to leave his country and to embark on a, a, a strange land that he had never known. I couldn't imagine if if Moses, after 40 years in Egypt, didn't decide to walk over to that burning bush and get the call of God in his life. And he said, you know what? I'm actually quite quite content continuing herding these sheep. I'm quite content here. I couldn't imagine what would happen if he had said no to the call of God. Could you imagine what would have happened if King David had remained the little shepherd boy in his as Samuel came to anoint him, he say, you know what, Sam? Because they shorten names in the Bible, I'm sure. I, I'm not quite feeling this whole king thing. You see, they're all calls of God. But what happens is, these men hear the call of God, and they say yes to it. I wonder how many miracles are waiting in our pews tonight. I wonder how many times God has called and God has tugged and God has moved and at times God has so put a shock in your heart that you sit there almost in paralytic shock uh, knowing God's telling you to move and I just wonder how many times we let the miracle stay. 
You see, miracles happen when you go. Miracles happen when you move. There is no Red Sea crossing if Moses doesn't leave the sheep. There is no great victories in King David's reign if David doesn't leave the sheep. I wonder how many amazing miracles stay in our pews because we're not willing to react to the call of God. Because we're not willing to move when God is working a work. I want to point out to you not only the warning, but finally the work. The work. I said earlier, it is a blessed thing to have God moving in our life. Did you know that there was a time in Scripture where the Bible says that there was no open revelation? That there was no God speaking to people in dreams or any type of other thing like that, and they didn't have the Word of God? Did you know at that point they literally had no message from God? Could you imagine growing up in that time? But you see, we are so blessed because we have God's Word. Not only do we have God's Word, it is a perfect copy of God's Word. And what I mean by that is, we are an English-speaking people, and the Bible was not written in English, but God, through His sovereignty and through His plan somehow orchestrated a, a bunch of events together and made it where His Word would be kept to our generation. And He has given us this Word, and it is perfect and inerrant and infallible, just as if it was straight off the scroll that Moses had written. That is how amazing this Word is. And God has given us that. You know God's trying to do works in our presence all the time? He works to us through the preaching of God's Word. Do you know Paul says uh, to the world that our preaching is foolishness, but unto us who believe it is the power of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. God is trying to do a work in our presence. And the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us it is the power of God. God's trying to do a work. I want you to take your Bibles to James chapter 1. Now, I believe the reason that Paul said all this was because he knew that there would be some people who would react and there would be some people who would not. Verse chapter, uh, ver chapter number 1, verse 22, the Bible says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The Bible paints for us a picture, a man who looks in a glass or a mirror, beholds his natural face in the glass, sees what's wrong with him, and decides, I'm not going to fix what's wrong. And he goes his own way. Verse 25 tells us, the man who looks into the perfect law of liberty, or the mirror of God's word, and sees where they're wrong and sees what's not right, then they choose to walk the path that God is trying to work in their life. When they do that, that man is blessed. So can I ask you tonight, are you a doer or are you a hearer? We could more accurately probably define it as, when's the last time that God moved in your heart to walk these aisles? To visit this altar? I had a lady tell me the other day, a slightly older lady, she says, Brother Andrew, you seem to always talk about asking people to come down to the altar. She said, you know, I would love to come down to the altar, but at my age, I'd be afraid I couldn't get back up. One day, you may not have the luxury of walking these aisles. And we, in our perfect health and perfect condition, stay seated. I wonder how many miracles are in your seat. Because it's when you move, that's when God can do a work. A few years ago for Christmas, I had asked, my grandmother has about a $100 limit as far as what she gets the grandkids. She has a bunch of them. 
And so she spends a lot of money on us. But we all kind of know we can ask for something around $100 or if we have a few things that kind of equal in about that sum total, she'd be willing to get that for us. So we give her a list. We don't go too extravagant, so we don't put, like, Ferraris on there or anything like that. So we just give her a, a list with about $100 worth of stuff on it. But I really, I, I want to say this. I'm so spiritual, I don't really need anything. <laughs> Y'all believe that. Y'all are crazy. Uh, but for some reason this year, I was having a lot of trouble finding a present. Because all my presents seem to be like of the $1,000 value, and I'm too broke to afford those. And so uh, I knew Grandma couldn't get that for me. So what I did is I went on Walmart's website, and I typed in the only thing that I seem to be interested in, hunting, okay? And so all this stuff comes up, and I found this fleece pullover. It said Ducks Unlimited on it, and I had just started duck hunting at the time, and and I really wanted this pullover. I didn't, I'd never seen it in person. I didn't know if the size would fit, but I just got my size, my average size. And I said, hey, that looks cool. And so that's what I put on the list. And it cost $99.99. So I said, man, I'm right there at the total. Good. I'll ask for a piece of bubble gum, too. Because uh, don't want to get shortchanged at Christmas, right? But so I put that on the list. Christmas is about giving than receiving, more receiving than giving. But I put that on the list. And um, we get over to Grandma's house, and everybody's unwrapping their presents. I believe this is the same year that Mandy forgot to send a list, and so Grandma went to Dollar General and got her everything for $5. That was good. That was funny. And so I didn't forget a list, but I asked for this fleece pullover, and obviously it was the only thing I asked for, and so I said, well, that's what I'll get. Well, I unwrap my present when it comes my turn, and it's a DVR. Uh, that's like old school how to record on satellite. That was like when they first came out, and I didn't have one, and I wanted one. So, I, But I, I did have one at that point because Mom had got me one not just a few weeks prior. And so I'm looking at this box, this DVR, and I have to act happy, right? Isn't that what you have to do? I, that's what you do to make people, people feel like they did a good job. Grandma! Awesome! You don't know how long I wanted one of these. Because I used to want it. I don't want it anymore. But I had previously wanted one of these. So, Grandma, you don't know how long I wanted one of these. Great. Thanks so much. Appreciate that. Hug, kiss, love it. I put it in the car. I never opened the box. Because it said DVR on it. Months later, I'm going through this uh, I guess cleaning my room, that's about the span months. I clean my room every other three months. But I find this box. I'm like, what am I even going to do with the DVR? I guess I'll just install it in the living room or something. I open it, and it's my pullover. The whole time I had gotten what I wanted, and yet I was too obstinate and too moronic, I guess would be a better term, to actually open it and take advantage of what was on the inside. So many times, God wants to give us what we need. But when we fail to take advantage of what He's given us, we sit right back there and we have the box cutter in our hand. We have the ability to open the, open the box. We have the ability to see miracles as long as we would heed the work that He's wanting to do in our life. And yet we stay back. What a shame that God would speak to us and we would not answer. God wants to do a work in our church. He wants to do miracles in our lives. So often we are the ones that say, no, I'm, I'm quite content the way I have it. A preacher is supposed to point out your failures. He's supposed to point to your faith. And he is supposed to help you understand your folly.